Good morning. This is Jeff Feldman, Mr. F Food Safety EDU. Today is March 24th, 2023, and I'm getting back into it, uh, trying to. So today I want to cover the crib sheet. Um, this is a, a posting that I'm going to have the piece of paper for everybody to resource whenever you like. Uh, and then this audio is an accompaniment to my crib sheet. So I hope it helps. A lot of information on one little piece of paper. Today we are covering the what I call the crib sheet. So the crib sheet I put together, gosh, years ago in order to have a one-page reference. Now, when we give the training, there's either a 10-chapter book or a 15-chapter book that you know we have to flip through. And then there's PowerPoints, so death by PowerPoint. Here, just so we can talk and we can actually take the piece of paper, go outside in the parking lot, go outside uh, onto the grass, and we can still talk about these things. And it keeps everybody on track. So here on my crib sheet, it has my information, my name, my website. And then in block number one, we have Fat Tom, food, acid, time, temperature, oxygen, and moisture. So these are the requirements for bacterial growth uh, and not viruses and not parasites, but bacteria specifically. All right. Um, bacteria are alive and living. They need food. They need carbohydrates and proteins in order to grow and thrive and move on. And then some bacteria are healthy and safe. Some are spoilage bacteria, and some are what we call pathogens. So in block number two, which is underneath the fat tom block, you see on the right-hand side of that block, it says pathogens. And we have it as bacteria, viruses, parasites, slash protozoa, and fungi, slash yeast. So pathogen is the word that they'll use on the test, uh, indicating this is an illness-causing microorganism. This is the one that makes us sick. So... Going back to block one, food, acid, time, temperature, oxygen, moisture, we use the acronym FATTOM to help us remember these six things that are required for bacteria to grow. Bacteria are alive and living, right? So acidity. In the environment, uh, it needs to be a comfortable environment. So on a scale of 0 to 14, that's the pH scale, the power, uh, power of hydrogen or potential of hydrogen. And there's hydrogen ions and hydroxyl ions. And, and as you are on either end of the scale, it's either acidic down on the zero end and it's basic or with uh, the, the food safety test, they call it alkaline or alkalinity um, on, the, on the top end, 14. So seven is neutral. So here on the piece of paper, it says 7.5 to 4.6. That's the neutral zone, kind of like Star Trek. That's where the, the bacteria are happy. That's where they'll grow and thrive, right? If they're allowed to. If you can control that by adding acid, then you prevent the bacteria from growing or you, you add base on the other end. So 7.5 to 4.6, the health department, when they're coming in and you're doing certain techniques in cooking, you have to prove to them that you're um, creating a barrier or sometimes a double barrier to prevent the bacteria from growing. So you'll use uh, pH as a control or acidity in this case uh, to control the bacteria growth. All right. All right. Time. Four hours or more in the temperature danger zone equals illness. So four hours is our catch-all number. Right. Uh, I'll get into it later, but that's the catch-all number, black and white, right? There's a little more information that goes along with it, uh, and I'll cover that later. Temperature. The temperature danger zone currently is 41 degrees Fahrenheit to 135 degrees Fahrenheit. Temperature danger zone, the TDZ. Over the years, the temperature danger zone has changed. It was other numbers previously, but the answer to your test currently in 2023 uh, is 41 to 135, okay? And there's more information. All of these have more information 
so I'll do my best to break it down, but this is just a um, a gloss over of this crib sheet. I call this the crib sheet because all the information is on the one page. I think I already said that. Anyway, uh, oxygen. Some bacteria need oxygen to grow. Some bacteria don't need any oxygen to grow, and some don't care. Either way, they'll grow with it or without it. So uh, the aerobic bacteria uh, need oxygen. Anaerobic don't need oxygen. And that one that kills people, it paralyzes them, right? From the baked potato, from the sous vide mushrooms, from the uh, jarred home canned uh, bamboo shoots, and from cans and potato salad. So we've had these and baked potatoes have caused botulism. All of the ones that I just mentioned over the years, course of years, have caused botulism. Botulism poisoning paralyzes you and then you die because it just paralyzes everything. I do have a podcast, I think it's number 20, um, that is a description and a a story from a woman who was paralyzed by eating a baked potato and she came out of it, thankfully, but she still has a hard time for the rest of her life because of this issue. Uh, but her story is there. So if you go to podcast number 20, um, take a look at that. Okay. So, and facultative bacteria, they don't care. They can grow with or without oxygen. And my favorite pathogen is uh, Listeria. Listeria monocytogenes is the favorite because it grows in the refrigerator. It grows with or without air. It grows in the normal temperature danger zone. It's, it's everywhere and it's a killer. So for certain people, it'll kill. You know, uh, ladies, when you go to the doctor and you're pregnant and the doctor gives you a sheet of paper that says, do not eat these things. Don't eat deli cheeses, deli meats. Don't eat undercooked foods. Uh, don't drink raw milk. All of these carry listeria and it causes you to lose the baby. All right. You feel fine. You're healthy, strong and everything else, but it'll mess up your baby. So that's why the doctors say, don't eat these things, but they probably don't describe why, uh, which pathogen is going to kill the baby. So pay attention, you know, oh, I've never been sick before. It doesn't matter. It matters all the time, especially if you want to have a healthy baby. Okay. And finally, moisture, the AW. Um, on the test, they'll be asking about AW, water activity. I don't know why it's ah instead of wah, but it's aw okay and in the old days they would ask the, the percentage so again bacteria are alive and living they need food to eat and consume and they need water in essence to drink right moisture so water activity of 85 percent or higher allows for bacterial uh growth right if you take away if you make it a dry so uh, in the old days, the cowboys out on the range, right? They would have hardtack. They would have food that is dried out, right? When we have, uh, when I was in the army and I was going on uh, different uh, uh, training times, I would carry my pogey bait. Pogey bait is all my goodies, all my food, all my snacks in a in a in a bag. Uh, I was in a tracked vehicle, so I could carry more than just on my back. So. I had um, beef jerky and I had uh, granola bars, dry things so the bacteria doesn't grow in them, right? So, and then the MREs were all dried out. And then you would reconstitute, you open up the MRE, which is a meal ready to eat, right? It's a pouch of food that we would carry in our cargo pockets on our, in our uniforms. And when you got hungry, you open up the pouch and everything in there is dry, less than 85% moisture. And like I say, on the strawberries, I remember in Germany, we were railheading to a training facility or training uh, maneuver area, and we were on the train, and the vehicles are on the, on the flat cars, and we were in the, in the rail cars, you know, cooling out as we were traveling, and it's time to eat. So you open up the bag, and you, <laughs> strawberries, dehydrated strawberries. It's kind of like the stuff when you, when you go camping, you go to the camping store, and you get these dehydrated foods. Same thing. You add water to it. You let it sit for a minute. It reconstitutes. And then you have some nice reconstituted strawberries. So water activity is a thing. In food safety, 
when we work with time and temperature, that's the normal area for us to control. Time and temperature is the normal area for us to control in a normal kitchen. Now, some chefs want to use acid, oxygen, or moisture to tweak and change and dry things out and curing and smoking and preserving, right? If we do it for preservation over time, like you're going to put something in a jar and you're going to sell it at a grocery store and it's going to sit on the shelf for months, then you have to have more controls. You have to have HACCP system. You have to have more safety and controls and proof to the health department. If you are uh, just simply using time and temperature, okay. If you use sous vide cooking, right? Under vacuum. So it's where you take the food and you put it in the pouch and then you cook it in a warm water bath. Over time, it depends on what the ingredients are that are inside that thing. And the health department hates, well, they, they want to make sure that you know what the heck you're doing. So uh, there's a certain time and temperature for storage of things. But if you're going to store it, if you're going to package these up and you're going to put it in the refrigerator and you're going to store it for days, that's where the problem occurs. Because once you change the environment, then the anaerobic bacteria and the facultative bacteria can potentially take off. And it's happened before. And that's why the health department is all over it. Here in California, if you're a chef and you're going to do sous vide, you must create a HACCP plan. You have to send it to the state health department, not just your local health department, but you have to send that plan to the state health department. They have to approve it, right? There's one person there. I knew the person who used to be there. Uh, she's retired now and there's a new person, but reviewing it and making sure basically is that the chef understands the issues and problems and the potentials that can cause death, right? And if you do it properly using HACCP as a guideline, then it controls your uh, times and temperatures. It takes into account the, um, the risks and the hazards. And uh, so it proves to the health department that you know what you're talking about. Now, a lot of chefs just have somebody else make that plan for them. And it's just, here, I'll pay you money. You make the plan for me. Okay. And now I send that to the health department. That doesn't help. Because then whoever's working on that sous vide product messes it up and can kill somebody. They're not following the plan. They don't believe in the plan. You have to believe in the plan in order for it to go. Okay? You have to use it and actually follow. And that's the thing about HACCP, which uh, I'm looking. I don't even think it's on my list here. But <laughs> hazard analysis and critical control point system. The laws are changing. The laws and the focus is being more and more intense because more and more people are getting sick. You as a restaurateur, caterer, someone who works in a hospital, a nursing home, uh, a school, we just have to make sure that we purchase everything from that approved, reputable supplier. So down below in risk factors, one, two, three, four, five, in the third box down, risk factors, Food from unsafe sources, 6% of the problem. So there was a study done in 2000, and it, it focused on what are the biggest areas of concern. And these are the five most common risk factors that were identified. Now, there are a few others, but these are the biggest five. So when you take your test, they're talking about the five most common risk factors. These are them. And I added the percentages based on the 2000 uh, study just so you have a visual, so it's a better understanding of what's happening. Now, one of my students, when I was doing this at CIA, Culinary Institute of America, Greystone in St. Helena, uh, California, over in Napa County. So I'm giving the presentation, and they, they write it down, and they say, hey, Mr. F., this, it doesn't add up to, up to 100%. I said, no, it doesn't, because this is the most common five, but there are others underneath. There's about 11% more ones and twos and half percents, you know, and things. So I have a link to the study uh, and I'll put it up somewhere. But these are the most uh, common five risk factors. And these are the ones you need to be aware of and know about when you take the test. All right. Um, if you go to the right, there's another box that says interventions. The risk factors and the interventions, the interventions go together with the risk factors. All the problems or risk factors, all the interventions mean these are the things that we have to do to work on in order to 
prevent problems, right? When the health department walks in the door and they have a health inspection sheet, right? The health inspector walks in and first thing they do is, of course, they go to the hand washing sink to make sure you have hot water. So they wash their hands. Then they start asking you questions. And on the top, number one on our California health inspection sheet is demonstration of knowledge. They're going to ask for your certificate. They want to see the certificate, make sure it's within dates, right? Current. Uh, And in California, as of 2011, all employees throughout the food industry must be trained in food safety. So they have to have a food handler card. Now, not all businesses. Interventions. Uh, demonstration of knowledge. That's on the health inspection sheet. It's number one. They want to know that you know what you're talking about. Plus, they want the certificate. The certificate has to be either in a binder or on the wall, and all of your employees need to have it also. Okay, employee health plant policies and procedures. So, number two, employee health. On, uh, I have the link to the FDA health and hygiene uh, booklet, which is a great guideline. If you look in your food safety training booklets and the FDA food code, which is all this is based on the FDA food code, then the the employee health policies and procedures and SOPs, that all is a huge thing. That way, people are working, they're clean, safe, and and not sick. No discharge from the eyes and nose and mouth, the coughing, spitting, runny nose, discharge from the eyes. no uh, ictericia, which is uh, uh, jaundice, right? They're not yellow because of hepatitis A virus. So uh, employee health is a huge thing. Time and temperature control. Everybody needs to understand time and temperatures, right? All the employees need to get it, not just the manager. So it's a leadership down approach. Everyone, you have to create the culture. You have to believe in it yourself. If you don't believe in it, oh, we don't do that because we don't care. Uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, I get over the top sometimes. Anyway, hands is a vehicle of contamination. The biggest vehicle of contamination is the hands. You touch everything. You touch money, doorknobs, telephone, toilet paper. Um, and so then when you're going to touch food, some jurisdictions require no bare hand contact with ready to eat food. And other ones, they don't have that in place. So people can touch with bare hands ready-to-eat foods like a sandwich and a salad and, you know, things like that. So the viruses and the, and the bacteria uh, can transfer from the fingers. This is called the fecal-oral route, right? Somehow feces gets on your fingers because you're touching everything. You go to the toilet. You don't wash up properly. You just do the little clap under cold water, and that's it. And now you touch the food, and then people get sick. So it's one in six. One in six people is going to get some kind of foodborne illness uh, at some point. So the, uh, the stats are 48 million people in the United States alone in one year, 365 days in a year, 48 million people are going to get sick from some type of foodborne illness. Now, not everybody goes to the doctor. Not everybody uh, gets researched about this. So it's an estimate, right? 128,000 people do go to the hospital. And about 3,000 people die each year, one year, 365 days, 3,000 people die from foodborne illness. Water's another one, which I go into later. Um, the old numbers were a little bit different, but these are the new numbers based on a new schematic uh, or, or program. And it's, it's really, you know, quite bad. So we, as the professionals in the kitchen, have to make sure that we are trained, we're paying attention, and uh, we get it right. All right, so the risk factors. I talked about food from unsafe sources. We have to purchase everything from that approved source so we know that it's clean and good and safe, honestly presented, and unadulterated. Those are the words, unadulterated and honestly presented. We can't serve food and call it something else. If we run out of a certain type of fish, we have to change the fish and we have to change the name of the fish to the customers, right? So the server has to say, oh, we're out of the blue nose. We have XYZ instead. Okay, but we don't mislead the customers, right? Inadequate cooking. We have to cook our foods to the proper times and temperatures. Cook to kill. Some of my students, based on my class, they they get their their T-shirt at the end 
before they graduate with the Coast Guard. And, uh, you know, they they got together and they make a, it's like a logo and it goes on the back of the t-shirt and whatever words they want to put. And usually it has all their names on it, uh, the class names. And, and um, it's been, you know, each class does their own. So the artwork comes up and down at the bottom, they said, hey, Mr. F, look at this. And I looked and it said, cook to kill. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Because in my head, we're cooking to kill the bacteria, making the food safe. That's what they were intention, or that's what their intention was. And then one of the chef instructors, uh, Ken, he's like, cook to kill? Wait, you're killing people by your cooking? It's like, no, cook to kill for the bacteria. And then we have to change it and say, you're killing it. You're cooking, to, you're killing it. You're making it so good, so yummy. But uh, it, w- it was funny how the perception is on cooked kill. But from me in this food safety class, we have to cook to kill. Larry Pong was one of my instructors in San Francisco. He was a, a health inspector with San Francisco uh, for 30 plus years. And he did training, training, training. And I went through his uh, train-the-trainer course uh, back in the day, and I took a couple of courses from him just as a food person also. So I had repetition, repetition, repetition from him, and he was awesome, and he did some really terrific things. He was an outstanding trainer. He was an outstanding coach and teacher, and so I really appreciated him. He had an axiom that went, trying to remember, Cooked feces cannot hurt you. Uncooked feces can kill you. That was Pong's axiom number three. So in my training, I say cook to kill. Although, I want to say cook to kill and search and destroy. There's a podcast from the food safety folks that I was listening to. And uh, maybe I picked that up from them. Regardless, it's good information and good way of thinking, I think. Uh, So I agree. I need to listen to that podcast again. I haven't listened to it in a couple of years now. So inadequate cooking. We have to cook our foods to the proper times and temperatures to kill off the bad stuff. All right. Using contaminated equipment. If you don't clean your stuff, if you don't clean your equipment, then you're just using dirty equipment. And the dirty equipment can be contaminated with all types of viruses and pathogens and just nasty stuff so which can contaminate onto your food as you move so dirty towels dirty cutting boards dirty knives i worked with a cook way back in 1982 i think i was a host or a busboy back then and i remember he would flip his knife around and then he would cut the sandwich and he'd flip the knife again and he'd put it back in the ticket holder on the line right it was like a little trough that would hold the knife and uh I don't know that that ever got sanitized. It never got, but it was so cool as a teenage kid way back then where he would grab the knife and then flip it. You know how you um, flip coins? He wouldn't flip it out of his hand, but he would just roll it through his fingers and it was really cool. And then he would grab the bread and cut the sandwich and then put the knife, flip it and put the knife back in the holder. And then he'd put the sandwich on the plate and serve it to the customer. Years later, I came back from the army and I got a job at my old deli. Uh, My old boss said, yeah, you know, come back to work for a little while. So I did. And so I remembered Lee, who was the cook in the old days. And so here I am now trying to flip the knife because I'm cool, right? And everybody, every time I flip the knife, they all stood back. They're like, stupid, you're going to kill somebody. Because there's five of us up against one small table. And here I am flipping a knife thinking I'm cool. Anyway, uh... So I stopped that. But contaminated equipment. You have to wash, rinse, sanitize, and air dry. That's the answer. That's the process. Up near the logo, there's a little box below the logo in the right corner of this piece of paper. And it says wash, rinse, sanitize, and air dry. Remember that for your test because that's the big answer. So that's why using contaminated equipment is a problem. You have to make sure it's clean equipment the whole time. All right. Poor personal hygiene, people that are sick or dirty or nasty or coughing, sneezing, hacking, drooling, spitting, back in that restaurant again. Um, the, the line cooks would take a garbage can, put it on the end of the line, and they would play, you know, it's like playing basketball or whatever, or soccer. So they're spitting 
and they're spitting by five feet or 10 feet into the garbage can. But where does the peripheral saliva go? It goes sideways onto the cutting boards, right? Onto the work surfaces. And nobody thought about it back then. This is way back in the 80s, 81, 82. There was something on the news, some kid standing in lettuce at one of these fast food places. People do dumb things because they don't think, they don't know any better, they're young, you know. So there always has to be a PIC, a person in charge. That's key. And everybody needs to be trained. And there needs to be supervision all the time, right? That's why there's a PIC or a shift lead or a manager or a lead line cook who has a little more experience and a little more um, gumption to, to keep people in line. All right. Poor personal hygiene. Making sure you have SOPs. Remember in the interventions, uh, we talked about employee health, and that's the um, health and hygiene book from the FDA. And it's also in your food safety book. Chapter, depending on which book you're in, chapter three, chapter four, it's all about personal hygiene, being clean, being healthy, reporting illness. So that health and hygiene book has some forms that are guidelines that you can use as an owner operator, as a chef leader, as an HR person in a, in a restaurant or a food service operation. And these are the things, these are the documents that are being um, strongly recommended, strongly suggested that when you hire employees, they agree to tell you when they're sick or when they've seen a doctor and, and have been diagnosed with one of the big six um, uh, reportable diseases. Anyway, that's a whole thing on personal hygiene. Improper holding temperatures. That's the biggest number because people throw food in the back of their pickup truck and they drive. Um, refrigerators break down, freezers break down, people leave food out too long. We have to make sure that we hold cold food cold below 41 degrees. And we hold hot food hot above 135 degrees. That's the temperature danger zone, right? From 135 to 41, anywhere in the middle is the temperature danger zone. And that's where bacteria, if it's there, is going to grow. And it can grow to a level to cause people illness, to get sick. So improper holding temperatures has been the biggest problem. And that's when the health inspectors come in. They have their thermometers. They have a, a laser thermometer for surface temperatures, and they should have a probe thermometer also because they can zap with the, with the surface thermometer just to see what's going on as an overall, and it's quicker and cleaner. But it doesn't tell you the inside temperature. So they should come through also with their probe, which they do. You know, the, when, when I'm inspected, it's a probe thermometer. The, the inspectors come in with a probe thermometer, and then they also have the, uh, the laser for certain things. Make sure that when they're poking around, if you pull out your calibrated thermometer, because you have to calibrate it, right? Make sure, and then you poke with them, right? And then you can double check their thermometer with yours, because you know yours is good, right? Now, we trust the health inspectors and their professionals, and they're just doing a job to keep the public safe, coaching us and keeping us on track. So they are a good asset and a good friend to have. Call them. Ask them questions. When there's confusion, call them. They're there to help you. Okay? All right. The next blocks. Foodborne infection, foodborne intoxication, and toxin-mediated infections. These are different styles of pathogens that make us sick in different ways. So the infections, we become infected with these product, uh, pathogens, and they grow on us. They grow in your gut over time, and it could be a week later before you get sick. Foodborne intoxications... Bacillus cereus, Staphylococcus, and botulism, Clostridium botulinum, um, and Staphylococcus aureus. Those are bacteria that can grow on the food to a certain level and then become toxic. And then when you consume that food, then you get sick with one of these. So rice, the vomiting, rice vomiting disease is Bacillus cereus. It's very common. So what do the Japanese do with sushi rice? Sushi rice is going to be served at room temperature, right? The sushi rice has to be, remember we talked about pH and acidity way up in Fat Tom at the top of the page. What do, we, what do the Japanese uh, sushi chefs do to the rice to make it flavorful, but also to make it safe? They add rice vinegar, right? So the vinegar changes the pH. Now, 
down in San Diego County, California, any sushi house that has sushi rice must have a HACCP plan on the rice, proving that all the grains of rice have that vinegar on it and that it's the acid level is at a level lower than that 4.6. So I think 4.4 or 4.2, I'm not sure. Anyway, but there has to be proof and every batch of rice needs to be tested and then recorded. And when the health inspectors down there come in, they're looking for that uh, tracking and the proof that the people know what they're doing. Because if you leave rice out, there's what we call spore forming bacteria that are in the ground, the dirt, and the dust that are in the rice and the grains and the herbs and the, and the potatoes and carrots and anything. I mean, it can be on meat too. If ground, dirt, or dust can gets onto products, if it's dirty, the spore bacteria are dormant hiding on that. And if we cook it, it's heat treating the plant food, which activates the spore. It says, wake up, wake up, wake up. And then if you temperature abuse that product, the bacteria will open, kind of like the alien's egg, right? And then grow, the bacteria inside grows to a toxic level. And then you consume that food like the baked potato or the rice. And with the rice, you're vomiting all of a sudden. It's You're poisoned immediately. Within a few minutes, you're vomiting, okay? With botulism, you start feeling funny over the first couple of days, and then pretty soon you go paralyzed. So you've been poisoned. That's why intoxication has the word toxic right in the middle of the word. And that means you're poisoned because the bacteria grew to a level and became toxic. All right. Toxin-mediated infections, Clostridium perfringens and E. coli, they get in your gut, they grow, and they cause toxins in your gut. So E. coli causes hemolytic uremitic syndrome, will shut down the kidneys. Um, that's the one in, in uh, 1993. Jack in the Box went through that, and it just so happened to coincide. 1993, the very first food code. There were other codes before, but the U.S. Uh, FDA um, food code was the first one, 1993. Uh, Jack in the Box happened 1993. Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the water was uh, contaminated with cryptosporidius, which uh, made 400,000 people sick, sent a bunch of people to the hospital and killed, mm, I'm trying to remember, between 70 and 100 people uh, from drinking water out of the tap at their faucet because the water treatment, so cryptosporidius is resistant to uh, chlorine. So that's why filters on water is so important. You have to filter, 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 filter. And then once it's filtered properly, then you put chlorine in the water to keep the pipes clean from any bacteria that might get in there. So when you're drinking water, um, if you look on my paper on the crib sheet and go up where Fat Tom was at the top, the next block down are the parasites, viruses, and pathogens. You see that? Under the parasites, you see cyclospora, which was um, an outbreak. A whole bunch of uh, anesthesiologists got really horrible sick from eating raspberries on salads, okay? Um, and then cryptosporidium was the one that killed all these people in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1993. It was a huge outbreak for the water treatment people, but it also, water gets into food. We wash our food with water. We use water to make our food. Water is a key player in all of this. We have wells in certain places and we have water treatment plants in other places. Even at Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the water treatment plant became contaminated back then. So cryptosporidium giardia is the camping one. They call it beaver fever. You go out camping, you drink the water in the little creek or the brook next to your tent, and all of a sudden you have horrible cramps right? Because you have the parasite inside of you and it's causing you havoc in your gut. And then anastochiasis, anastochiasis simplex is the worms, right? Cod worms, those little worms in fish. So you eat some sushi and it has a little worm in it. And then all of a sudden you have a wiggling, tickling thing in your throat. Um, and if you swallow it, I have this great video about a doctor who has a, um, a scope and a, uh, 
a retrieval tool and it goes down the restaurateur's throat all the way down into his esophagus and then pulls this worm, right? It grabs onto it and pulls it all the way back out of his throat. And it's uh, Anasaka simplex uh, worms. And then there's other worms too, like trichinosis, which was in, uh, is in wild animals. So when you have wild animals, I work with the Coast Guard and they go, when they're in Alaska, they're stationed in Alaska, they go bear hunting and elk hunting and wild boar hunting. And so these worms, these parasites are in the wild game. That's why it's so important that we purchase all of our food in a restaurant from an approved source, which tries to prevent all that. In the old days, our normal pigs, right, pork, would have this. So we had to cook it to a higher temperature. Now, the way our pork is raised and treated, um, they're not as worried with the uh, trichinosis worm anymore. So we can cook to a lower temperature. So when I cook a piece of steak, it's 145. When I cook a piece of pork chop, it can be 145 also. But a lot of people are like freaked out. They say, oh no, you have to overcook the pork. Okay, well, you know, that's the old thinking. You can still do the undercook, uh, you know, or, or the normal cook, I should say, for 145. Um, because that's bacteria. We're not worried about the, the worms so much when we get our purchases from an approved, reputable supplier that has the right uh, system. Meat, poultry, and eggs are inspected uh, and, quali and mandatory inspection and voluntary grading, right? Prime, choice, select for the beef and all that. Um, but they have to have a USDA inspector. And the USDA inspector is trained to look and watch these things. And they see a bunch of worms, they're going to stop process. They're not going to allow it through. So um, they're watching, they're testing, they're actually taking parts of the animals and uh, cutting out some of the brain and cutting out some of this and that and then inspecting it before they allow the process to continue. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a whole more intense issue. So parasites. Um, that was in the water from 1993. So 1993 was a big year uh, for <laughs> many things. Okay. Uh, down here, internal cooking temperatures, 135 degrees for vegetables for hot holding. If I'm going to saute some carrots and feed you on a plate immediately, there is no temperature because it's immediate service. I cook it, make it warm, put it on your plate, you eat it. But if it's going to hold for an amount of time, I have to cook the vegetable to 135 first, put it in a steam line with sterno or a regular hot holding pattern and keep it above 135, right? If I'm going to cook a piece of steak... It's going to go to 145 internal temperature. So I need a probe thermometer, a bimetallic stem thermometer, or a, a, a probe thermometer um, to make sure. And it can't be sticking out the backside. you got to make sure where you put that thermometer. Ground, minced, chopped, flavor injected, mechanically tenderized, and mechanically tumbled now. 155 degrees for 17 seconds. So if we have any of those words in a piece of meat, so if I have a, a pork and it's tumbled with flavoring, all that flavoring is jammed, as it's tumbling, it's being jammed into the meat. So if there happens to be any contamination, it'll be jammed into the meat also. And that's why uh, mechanically tenderized, you know, those jacquard spike tenderizers. When I was at the steakhouse, we had this thousand needle tenderizer machine. So you take the piece of meat, it was a uh, top sirloin, and we put the big piece in the machine, push a button, and it was hydraulic press with a thousand needles, and it would needle through the, uh, the meat. Then you pull that out, and then you cut that into steaks, whatever size you had. You know, we had six ounce, we had eight ounce. Um, so once you needle it, right, or you compromise so let's back up. 145 degree for whole piece of meat. When you're breaking down the meat, wherever your knife touches is where the bacteria is. So now that's on the surface of the meat. And that's why we cook it to 145 degrees. When I was cutting steaks at the steakhouse, wherever my knife went, the bacteria, if it was there, because I was cleaning my knife, sanitizing my knife all the time, um, it would be on the outside. But once you grind it, mince it, chop it, tenderize it, now you're poking through and you're compromising the outside and you're pushing all the bacteria from the outside into the inside. 
then we have to cook 10 more degrees. So if it's a hamburger, we want to cook 10 more degrees to 155. Okay. Now, if we have poultry, including chicken, turkey, duck, squab, pheasant, all of those guys are considered poultry and they have to reach 165 degrees no matter what form they're in. So if it's a turkey burger, still has to reach 165. If it's a piece of chicken, 165. When we're cooking 400 pieces of chicken thighs, we get to 165, there's still a lot of blood. There's still a lot of rare and rawness down by the joint inside the thigh. So always double check your thighs. Always go higher. The answer to your test is 165. But based on experience, we cook 400 pieces of chicken thighs. And, and when you break it open, right? You poke it with your thermometer, it says 165. And then you break it open because that's what we do. And we check you know, we sacrifice one um, and it's all bloody still and we don't want it going off to the customer. So we actually, my process is to actually go to 175 on chicken thighs and we get them big. They're thick and big. So the bigger they are, the longer it takes to hit those numbers, right? If you have small pieces of meat and you're going to put them in the oven, but they're touching once they're touching, it becomes one big piece of meat, right? Because the heat's not going to get where it's touching. It's not going to happen. You have to spread it out. You have to spread them out so the air can get all the way around each individual piece. Um, when you're in a rush, you need to divide and conquer. You need to cut things into smaller pieces and then let them cook. So when we do uh, pulled pork, Sometimes we'll do low and slow for a long time. But if you run out of time, which happens often in that setup, we would, uh, you know, I walk in the door at 1030 and, and meals getting ready to go out and we, in, we take a look at the meat and it's not there yet. I freaking grab a knife, cut it down and throw it back in, but spread it out. And so as through process, you know, I can pull from one oven, get those ready, send them out to the customer, pull from the next oven. So it's like a rotation, like juggling, always keeping one ball in the air. Um, yeah, so black and white answer for you is 135 for vegetables for hot holding. 145 internal temperature for whole pieces of meat. That's pork, lamb, steak, okay, raccoon. If it's from an approved reputable supplier, from an approved source that's inspected, bison, elk, those all have to come from the right place. Make sure you're hitting the right temperatures. Um, okay, ground minced or chopped have to be 155 because now the bacteria is on the inside and 165 for all poultry. Reheating, anytime you reheat. So if I cook fish today and I'm supposed to, and I cook it to 145, a whole piece of fish, right? Like a piece of salmon. I cook it to 145. All right, I know that's overcooked, but the point is, Remember, the food safety people don't care about the food quality and the yumminess. That's the key. They want people to live and survive. Okay. So if you can think of it that way, the food safety test and the food safety people don't care about the yummy quality flavorfulness. All right. Um, so the black and white answer, 145 for whole pieces of fish. Where's the bacteria? On the surface, wherever your knife cut it. Um, so now I cook 10 pieces of fish. I only serve five. I have five left over. I'm going to cool them down quickly, put them in the fridge. Tomorrow, if I'm going to reheat them for service for dinner again on the hot holding pattern, right? I have to put it on the steam line. I'm supposed to put those same fish all the way up to 165 and then put them in the hot holding pattern at 135. That's the answer to the test. We wouldn't do that. Maybe you make a, a salmon salad instead or something. But the answer is anything that you reheat for the next day service for hot holding pattern needs to reach 165. Now let's qualify it. If I take that cold salmon out of the fridge and I put it on a plate and I give it to somebody, that's okay. Any temperature for immediate service. It's like me being at home and I reach in the fridge and I pull out anything and I eat it. That's okay because it's still under temperature control and I'm eating it cold. 
if I want to warm it up to 80 degrees just to knock off the chill and then eat it immediately, that's okay too. But watch the question on the test. If it's going to be hot held for service, then it must be reheated to 165 degrees first before it goes to the hot holding pattern, which is at 135 or better. Okay. All right. Um, steaks, roasts, big, huge. So a prime rib roast, right? It's uh, what? About 12, 13, 14, 15 inches long and nine inches, 10 inches wide and about six inches tall, five inches tall, right? That's a big piece of meat. Now we cook it low and slow in the, in the oven. You're allowed to cook low and slow and not reach 145. Um, there, are, there are various ranges that are acceptable by the health department. If you have a written agreement, right? An SOP that they're aware of, right? So you write the SOP. Okay, I'm going to use my auto sham tonight. So at the steakhouse, we did this. The auto sham would rage the heat for about 10 minutes and then it would drop to 135 all night long. And we would put our prime rib in there and that prime rib would stay all night long at 135. And the next day for service, it was still 135. It was beautiful, medium rare, but it had the time temperature relationship that was approved by health department and industry. So that's okay. We didn't have to go. Otherwise you go higher and, and that's not what the people want, right? But if you do use a lower temperature for a longer time, that's acceptable. It all depends on what it is. So you have to research it, know what you're doing before you uh, use this technique. And that's one of the techniques for uh, sous vide cooking is they go low and slow um, to have a perfect food item. And then when it comes out of the bag, then they either torch it or put it on the planchion to give it color. My yard reaction, right? To, to give it color um, and make it uh, visually appealing, but it's cooked to the perfect temperature, internal temperature, which would be an, uh, a lower undercooked uh, temperature. But it had the time, which was approved and, and able. Okay, so now I'm down here um, cooling food properly. So down about halfway is the SurfSafe logo and then my little uh, Mr. F with the website and it says cooling food properly. When at the end of the day, we want to go home, kind of like right now, we want to go home. So we have to cool any hot food that we're going to save for tomorrow and use again tomorrow because it's all money. We have to watch uh, and not throw things away. So if I have a big pot of chili and I didn't serve it, right? When I had my delicatessen every day, I made chili. I had, you know, I added my onions and my ground beef and just made it really yummy. And it had a big pot. And during the rainy season, we would go through it and when it would be empty. But as spring was happening, it wasn't as much. So I still needed it for tomorrow. So I would cool it down. So you pour it off into a hotel pan. Hotel pans, they're different sizes. There's a two inch deep, there's a four inch deep, and there's a six inch deep. Okay. And there's other ones too. But so with the Coast Guard, we call it a full shallow which is the two inch deep in the restaurant industry. We say series 200, um, a full medium is the four inch deep, which in the coast guard we saw, uh, is a medium. And in the restaurant we call series 400 and then series 600 or six inch deep would be a full deep, right? So deep, medium, shallow is what we call it with at the coast guard, uh, training center. All right. And then we have nine pans, six pans, third pans, half pans, shotguns, uh, full pans, all those different ones. Now, the thing is, my technique is to any hot food, hot soup, hot liquid, hot um, uh, marinara sauce, I need to cool it down today for tomorrow. I get it into a shallow pan or a medium, right? I, I go about two inches deep. I don't go more than two or three and they say no more than four inches. Coast Guard rules is no more than three inches. Now I'm confusing everybody. 
And then I like to go two inches deep because it's so much quicker if I just do it two inches deep. So I get a, a pan underneath full of ice in a perforated pan, okay? And then I put my hot pan into that ice. So it's direct touching. And because the perforated pan, as the ice melts, it's going to drip. So I have a catch pan underneath that to catch that water so it doesn't make a mess. All right. So now I have a catch pan. I have a perforated pan full of ice. Then I have my full shallow or my series 200. Um, actually, I use a series 400, but I only fill the liquid up halfway, two inches deep, right? In there. And then I get a half uh, pan, fill that in ice, and I put it in the top. So now I have a floating ice in the top, in the food, right? Make sure it's a clean pan. And I have the ice underneath. So I'm sandwiching my food. And within, I don't know, half hour, it's already down to 70 degrees, which is the key. No more steam, down to 70. Then I can take it all apart, put the stuff in the dish pit, cover with a vent my, uh, my pan, and put it in the reefer overnight. I have to get it down to 70 within two hours. So you see here on the cooling food properly, it says 135 to 70 within two hours. If you divide and conquer, if you divide fat, big foods into shallow and smaller foods, like that prime rib, in order for me to cool down a prime rib properly, I have to cut it into steaks. And then tomorrow we'll have steak and eggs in the morning, right? But I cut it into steaks and I lay it down on a sheet pan and then it's cool. But if I left it as a whole prime rib and then tried to cool it down, it would never cool down in time. Not to uh, industry standards. And if a health inspector came in and poked it with their thermometer, it'd still be too hot for too many hours. So the key is to repurpose the item for tomorrow, right? We can cut it up. We can put it into the chili tomorrow. We can do steak and eggs. We can do you know, something else, but repurpose it. But the, the biggest thing, the answer to your test is to cool from 135 to 70 within two hours. And then you put it in the fridge and you go home. And then the refrigerator does the additional four hours for you. So the answer is a total of six hours from 135 to 41 is supposed to be six hour total. But the most important area is to get it down to 70 because below 70 70 is a key number. Bacteria grow slower below 70. They grow faster from 70 to 125. That's where they thrive. That's where they're really happy. So if we can knock it down to 70 and then put it in the fridge and go home, the refrigerator will do the rest for us. Just remember, no steam in a reefer or a freezer, especially a freezer. If you put hot food in a freezer to cool off, the steam gets into the condensers in the machinery and then it refreezes, and then it creates a barrier for the machine. It won't breathe, and then it burns out the motor. And then you pay $5,000 for a new motor because you were not wise uh, by putting steam in a freezer. So never, ever, ever steam in a freezer. Years ago, when I was working at a restaurant in San Francisco on Bush Street, I was making the stocks. I had a light chicken stock. I had a dark chicken stock. I had, uh, let's see, I had a beef stock or a veal stock. Um, and at the end of the day, the line cooks are coming in for dinner shift and I had to get out of their way. So I took the big stock pot, which was, I don't know, 30 inches tall and at least uh, 15 inches round. So it was a big thing. 200 degrees, right? I'm, I'm simmering my stock all day long from the time I came in at 5.30 in the morning until 3 in the afternoon. I'm simmering, 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 simmering. Now, I want to go home. So I took it and I, and I was very, very young, okay? And I slid it into the walk-in refrigerator and I went home. That's 200 degree hot pot that I put in the fridge and the steam just went everywhere and it warmed up the refrigerator and my chef called screaming at me because I was an idiot, all right? I didn't know and... Uh, so you learn as you go, but listen to the stories and, you know, don't do that.
So now down at the bottom of the crib sheet, we have uh, the different blocks for the flow of food. So we have thawing food properly, purchasing food, preparation, receiving, storage, holding. And down at the very bottom, it says the flow of food, purchasing, receiving, storing, prepping, cooking, holding, cooling, reheating, and serving is the flow. And every step of the way, you have to watch the hazards slash contaminants. Okay. So for many, many years, HACCP was built on hazard analysis what could be there? What can we either prevent from happening in the first place? Eliminate from, uh, if it is there, or reduce to acceptable levels, okay? So hazard analysis. Now in the book, they're calling the, the hazards uh, contaminants, which is okay too, because that's, I mean, they are contaminants. The three contaminants are biological, chemical, and physical. A physical contaminant is a piece of glass, a piece of bone, a piece of hair, um, you know, something like that that you can bite on. It'll get in your mouth. I've had customers when I was waiting tables down in Texas, you know, somebody pulled out a, a doggone, uh, what do you call it, a nut. And they said, oh, this was in my sandwich and I just broke my tooth. And, and then they got up and they walked out. And I think, you know, they played me. I was young and they played me and basically they got a free meal and I wasn't, I, I don't know. Anyway, so people will play you. But at the same time, we have real things. So at Coast Guard, we had old mixers, okay? The mixers are like a small kitchen aid that's on the countertop, okay? Ours were a little bit bigger. And now they have safety cages over the top in order for you know your finger not to get in there or whatever the machine will not operate unless, unless the safety cage is attached properly and closed all the way all right now the old safety cages had nuts and bolts that would hold them together and these machines these little uh, um, mixers spin around and as they spin they vibrate and then those nuts and bolts from the safety cage come loose and then it falls into your whipped cream or into your dough and then you make your whipped cream, strawberry cream pie, and you add some whipped cream on there. And there's a nut or a bolt or, or a washer from the safety cage that was supposed to keep your fingers and things from getting into the bowl. So physical things. Watch, and you don't hear it, right? If there's a nut that falls into whipped cream, you're not going to hear it. And... and uh, or into flour, you're not going to hear that, and it's going to get mixed up and then go off to a customer. So things happen. Uh, in Band-Aids, they have metal pieces. So in, in manufacturing, as the conveyor line goes down, at the very end, there's a metal detector, and it'll pick up the Band-Aid. If the Band-Aid comes off your finger uh, and goes down the line, so you have a dirty, bloody Band-Aid, but it has a metal strand in there, and it'll be caught by the metal detector at the end, and then they catch that. Um, so physical is one hazard. Chemical, pesticides, uh, herbicides, uh, cleaning supplies, um, stainless steel cleaner, right? A lot of people use that aerosol stainless steel cleaner in a kitchen to clean the stainless steel, make it look pretty. But oftentimes people will go willy-nilly and spray in on the foods by mistake. Oops, sorry. Um, I had a pest control guy come into the pie shop one time and he was spraying and his wand was up too high and went into my pie uh, case, display case. And I saw it, so I had to throw away the pies and throw him out. And um, This is a long, long time ago. But uh, I was, when you have people come to support you, when you have maintenance crew, when you have um, uh, other support people come in, only the people who are supposed to be in the kitchen area or in the food prep area are meant to be there. When these other people come in, they're not thinking the same way you are. They're not thinking as clean and safe. The plumber's going to come and they're going to have their bags, right? And they're going to put their bag on top of your prep table. And where has those plumber bags been for the last few years? They've been in feces, right? Plumbers deal with toilets and plumbing and all kind of pathogens and bacteria and, and dirty untreated water and their bags are just carrying everything. And then they come and they set it on top of your counter where you prep food. You have to watch them. You have to, you know, pay attention to all that and then clean and sanitize. So when they, they do at Coast Guard, 
I grabbed one of the students. I said, follow that person and wherever they put their bags, clean and sanitize, right? Make sure it's clean and sanitized before we go back to work. So we have to babysit these people when they come to support us. We need their support, but at the same time, we do have to pay attention and watch them. All right, so that would be uh, biological contamination. They'll have viruses and pathogens on their bags, on their hands, on their clothing. Um, uh, there was a restaurant here in Santa Rosa. Um, they had a plumber come and fix the ice machine. Ice is a consumable. And so uh, supposedly uh, Shigella happened. Shigella, sh feces, right? Uh, I won't say the word, <laughs> but I think I have it tagged as explicit. Anyway, um, so Shigella is one of the big six uh, reportable diseases. It causes dysentery. Listen to my, uh, in 2015, I did a whole podcast on, on uh, dysentery and Shigella, Shigellosis, from an outbreak that happened here in the uh, South Bay, I think, uh, in California near San Francisco. Anyway, pretty nasty stuff. Um, so when people come to support you, they're carrying these hazards on them, with them. Uh, you know, the pathogens, so biological contamination or biological hazards. Contamination and hazards, same thing based on what we're talking about. Uh, chemical, in the old days, in the 50s, there was ads on the TV. It said, DDT, it's good for me. And there's a whole uh, advertisement uh, you know, promoting DDT and the pesticides and the herbicides that were going onto the crops that we would consume from the grocery stores. Uh, now we're trying to be organic and not have any of that stuff um, and, and uh, safer. So um, chemical, biological, and physical are the hazards and they are the contaminants and then the risk factors up above. So through the flow of food on the bottom of this um, crib sheet, Every step of the way, we have to watch the risks and the hazards, making sure that what we do and how we do it is as safe as possible. One of the huge things right now is that food allergens uh, are, are you know, taking off. So California just passed a new law um, and there's the FASTER Act from federal and they just added sesame onto the eight major allergens. Um, I did this typed uh, description of what happened on allergens, uh, but I might as well tell the story now while I have your attention, I think. Anyway, all right. So for years and years and years, we have eight major food allergens uh, that we've been training on. And for years, uh, you know, I just go over it. The biggest thing is that I have the students write, it's a... Um, I was going to say it's a scientific, systematic approach to food safety, but that's HACCP, and that's what popped into my head. What I'm thinking of is that food allergens, it's the body's negative reaction to a microscopic protein, right, that comes from these uh, products. People can be either allergic to these food allergens that will kill them dead or there's other people who have intolerances, who it makes them give a little gurgle in their belly. Um, different things. So intolerance, that's one thing. Food allergens is what we're talking about here. So there's nine major food allergens, uh, and for years there was only eight. So I'm at CIA, I'm giving the class, I'm getting ready to talk about uh, food allergens. And one of my students is, hey, Mr. F, Mr. F. One of my old instructors uh, gave us a, a, a trick or a little way to remember these things. And I said, great, you know, tell us. And he says, okay, he uses the days of the week. So what's Monday? Okay, Monday would be milk. All right, Wednesday. Wednesday would be wheat. Friday. Friday would be fish, right? Each one. Saturday. Saturday would be shellfish. Sunday. Sunday would be soy. Thursday would be tree nuts and peanuts, okay? Even though they're two different things, tree nuts are, are the tree nuts, peanuts are the peanuts, but in order for this memory device to work, you have to put them together onto Thursday. And then he said, well, what's missing? What's missing? Uh, oh, eggs, yeah, those damn eggs or those darn eggs, 
right? Those with the T for Tuesday. And then I noticed that uh, sesame was being added. And this is about a year before it ever happened, maybe more. And so in my training, I would say, okay, and someday, which is coming soon, but we don't know exactly when. What is someday? Someday has an S, so that would be sesame. So in my block of instruction, it was Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and someday, and then Thursday and Tuesday. So it would lock all those together. So sesame has now been added. Now I'm at Coast Guard, and we have little allergen tags. Every food item that goes out on the line, it's like a cafeteria line, there has to be a tag stating what's in the food allergen-wise, as well as dietary um, or, or religious-wise. So we have uh, chicken, pork, beef, right, on there. And then we have all the allergens on there also. And we didn't have sesame, but there's a block for other. So we would always write in sesame there. And just in this time frame, a young lady went through Coast Guard and they didn't tag it for sesame because it wasn't required back then. And she had an allergic reaction to sesame. She had to be rushed to the hospital. She survived. Everything was fine. But it is out there. Sesame is a thing. So sesame oil, sesame seeds. I drove through um, a restaurant and they have sesame seed buns, right? And so on their, on their list, on their door, it says, our sesame seeds buns have sesame as well as wheat and everything else. So um, the food allergens are the thing. The Faster Act just was passed, and now sesame is the ninth new uh, food allergen. Um, okay. Well, I hope that was fun. Uh, that's a lot, and there's so much more. So my intention is to do various podcasts and various resources for people if you need it, as you need it. Every five years, food managers have to take this test. Every three years, food handlers have to take it. If they're, uh, you know, anybody working and serving and touching or dealing with food have to have this. All right. I'm going to let you guys go now. I hope this helps. Thank you so much. And um, we'll be in touch again.